Welcome to Christ and Cthulhu. I am your host, C.L. Fuquay, and today we wrap up our journey through The Shadow over Innsmouth with Part 5. I have enjoyed going through this story with all you listeners, whether we do reflections or straight read-throughs. This is, in my opinion, one of Lovecraft's strongest stories, and as I've stated before, my personal favorite. And on this section, we get to see the final part of Robert Olmsted's journey into a larger world as it is. In other news, I recently shared via the Christ and Cthulhu Instagram page, which you should definitely follow if you haven't already, that the show has recently hit 1,000 listens, and I can't express my gratitude for all of you enough. This has always been a passion project. I don't profit financially from it, and try to piece and stitch episodes together in my spare time when not working a full-time job. Hence the inconsistency with episode release schedules. I wasn't sure if there were many out there interested when I got started, but I knew I was. And the content we do here wasn't available anywhere else I looked. And as C.S. Lewis once famously wrote to his friend Tolkien, quote, If they won't write the kind of books we like to read, we shall have to write them ourselves, end quote. So for those who have reached out to me on Instagram and by other means expressing love for the show, thanks so much for sticking around. At the end of this podcast, I'll be making a quick but important announcement regarding the trajectory of the show, so stay tuned till the end. Now on to the recap. Last time we experienced the harrowing ordeal of Robert Olmsted as he realized with vivid horror that the stories and fantastical tales about Shadowed Innsmouth were true, and all their unearthly grotesque reality the creatures, the crossbreeding, the strange religion. It was not the mad rantings of a town drunk, but the desperate truth. He learned more than he was supposed to, and realized events were set in motion to keep him in the town overnight, where he would be taken against his will. By way of Lovecraft's fantastic ability to create suspense and dread, we follow his flight out of the town, evading detection up until he catches a glimpse of, that hor- of the horrible fish frog creatures and faints. Let's continue wrapping up with part 5 of The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Robert Olmsted is awakened eventually by the gentle daylight rain and staggers out to the roadway. No more fishy odor and teeming hordes of monstrous aquatic blasphemies. He sees the tips of the Innsmouth steeples and roofs to the southeast but all is quiet. He starts to wonder if he hadn't imagined the whole thing due to the starkness of the contrast between last night and this morning. He begins making his way to Rowley, and walks there until he reaches the town by day's end. There he recovers himself, showers, and finds a presentable change of attire. He then proceeds to take the bus out to Arkham, where he speaks with government officials about his horrendous ordeal, then to officials in Boston. Mercifully, not taken to be a madman, they go to investigate, which is how we kicked off the beginning of this story. He says, though, that was not the end of his story, as a greater horror or a greater marvel is reaching out. As may well be imagined, I gave up most of the four planned features of the rest of my tour. The scenic, architectural, and antiquarian diversions on which I had counted so heavily. Nor did I dare look for that piece of strange jewelry said to be in the Miskatonic University Museum. I did, however, improve my stay in Arkham by collecting some genealogical notes I had long wished to possess. Very rough and hasty data, it is true, but capable of good use later on when I might have time to collate and codify them. The curator of the historical society there, Mr. E. Lapham Peabody, was very courteous about assisting me, 
and expressed unusual interest when I told him I was a grandson of Eliza Orne of Arkham, who was born in 1867 and had married James Williamson of Ohio at the age of 17. It seemed that a maternal uncle of mine had been there many years before on a quest much like my own, and that my grandmother's family was a topic of some local curiosity. There had, Mr. Peabody said, been considerable discussion about the marriage of her father, Benjamin Orne, just after the Civil War, since the ancestry of the bride was peculiarly puzzling. That bride was understood to have been an orphaned Marsh of New Hampshire, a cousin of the Essex County Marshes, but her education had been in France, and she knew very little of her family. A guardian had deposited funds in a Boston bank to maintain her and her French governess, but that guardian's name was unfamiliar to Arkham people, and in time he dropped out of sight, so that the governess assumed his role by court appointment. The French woman, now long dead, was very taciturn, and there were those who said she could have told more than she did. But the most baffling thing was the inability of anyone to place the recorded parents of the young woman, Enoch and Lydia Marsh, among the known families of New Hampshire. Possibly, many suggested, she was the natural daughter of some Marsh of prominence. She certainly had the true Marsh eyes. Most of the puzzling was done after her early death, which took place at the birth of my grandmother, her only child. Having formed some disagreeable impressions connected with the name of Marsh, I did not welcome the news that it belonged on my own ancestral tree, nor was I pleased by Mr. Peabody's suggestion that I had the true Marsh eyes myself. However, I was grateful for data, which I knew would prove valuable, and took copious notes and lists of book references regarding the well-documented Orrin family. I went directly home to Toledo from Boston and later spent a month at Mame recuperating from my ordeal. In September, I entered Oberlin for my final year and from then till next June was busy with studies and other wholesome activities, reminded of the bygone terror only by occasional official visits from government men in connection with the campaign, which my pleas and evidence had started. Around the middle of July, just a year after the Innsmouth experience, I spent a week with my late mother's family in Cleveland, checking some of my new genealogical data with the various notes, traditions, and bits of heirloom material in existence there, and seeing what kind of a connected chart I could construct. I did not exactly relish this task, for the atmosphere of the Williamson home had always depressed me. There was a strain of morbidity there, and my mother had never encouraged my visiting her parents as a child, although she always welcomed her father when he came to Toledo. My Arkham-born grandmother had seemed strange and almost terrifying to me, and I do not think I grieved when she disappeared. I was eight years old then, and it was said that she had wandered off in grief after the suicide of my Uncle Douglas, her eldest son. He had shot himself after a trip to New England, the same trip, no doubt, which had caused him to be recalled at the Arkham Historical Society. This uncle had resembled her, and I never liked him either. Something about the staring, unweaking expressions of both of them had given me a vague, unaccountable uneasiness. My mother and Uncle Walter had not looked like that. They were like their father, though poor little cousin Lawrence, Walter's son, had been an almost perfect duplicate of his grandmother before his condition took him to the permanent seclusion of a sanitarium at Canton. I had not seen him in four years, but my uncle once implied that his state, both mental and physical, was very bad. This worry had probably been a major cause of his mother's death two years before. My grandfather and his widowed son Walter now comprised the Cleveland household. But the memory of older times hung thickly over it. I still disliked the place and tried to get my researches done as quickly as possible. 
Williamson records and traditions were supplied in abundance by my grandfather, though for Orin material, I had to depend on my uncle Walter, who put at my disposal the contents of all his files, including notes, letters, cuttings, heirlooms, photographs, and miniatures. It was in going over the letters and pictures on the Orin side that I began to acquire a kind of terror of my own ancestry. As I have said, my grandmother and Uncle Douglas had always disturbed me. Now, years after their passing, I gazed at their pictured faces with a measurably heightened feeling of repulsion and alienage. I could not at first understand the change, but gradually a horrible sort of comparison began to obtrude itself on my unconscious mind despite the steady refusal of my consciousness to admit even the least suspicion of it. It was clear that the typical expression of these faces now suggested something it had not suggested before, something which would bring stark panic if too openly thought of. But the worst shock came when my uncle showed me the orange jewelry in a downtown safe deposit vault. Some of the items were delicate and inspiring enough, but there was one box of strange old pieces descended from my mysterious great-grandmother, which my uncle was almost reluctant to produce. They were, he said, a very grotesque and almost repulsive design, and had never to his knowledge been publicly worn, though my grandmother used to enjoy looking at them. Vague legends of bad luck clustered around them, and my great-grandmother's French governess had said they ought not to be worn in New England, though it would be quite safe to wear them in Europe. As my uncle began slowly and grudgingly to unwrap the things, he urged me not to be shocked by the strangeness and frequent hideousness of the designs. Artists and archaeologists who had seen them pronounced the workmanship superlatively and exotically exquisite, though no one seemed to be able to define their exact material or assign them to any specific art tradition. There were two armlets, a tiara and a kind of pectoral, the latter having in high relief certain figures of almost unbearable extravagance. During this description I had kept a tight rein on my emotions, but my face must have betrayed my mounting fears. My uncle looked concerned and paused in his unwrapping to study my countenance. I motioned to him to continue, which he did with renewed signs of reluctance. He seemed to expect some demonstration when the first piece, the tiara, became visible, but I doubt if he expected quite exactly what happened. I did not expect it either, for I thought I was thoroughly forewarned regarding what the jewelry would turn out to be. What I did was to faint silently away just as I had done in that briar-choked railway cut a year before. From that day on, my life has been a nightmare of brooding and apprehension. Nor do I know how much is hideous truth and how much madness. My great-grandmother had been a Marsh of unknown source whose husband lived in Arkham. And did not old Zadok say that the daughter of Obed Marsh by a monstrous mother was married to an Arkham man through a trick? What was it the ancient Toper had muttered about the likeness of my eyes to Captain Obed's? In Arkham too, the curator had told me I had the true Marsh eyes. Was Obed Marsh my own great-great-grandfather? Who or what then was my great-great-grandmother? But perhaps this is all madness. Those whitish gold ornaments might easily have been brought from some Innsmouth sailor by the father of my great-grandmother, whoever he was. And that look in the staring-eyed faces of my grandmother and self-slain uncle, it might be sheer fancy on my part. Sheer fancy, bolstered up by the Innsmouth shadow which had so darkly colored my imagination. But why had my uncle killed himself after the ancestral quest in New England? For more than two years, I fought off these reflections with partial success. 
My father secured me a place in an insurance office, and I buried myself in routine as deeply as possible. In the winter of 1930 to 31, however, the dreams began. They were very sparse and insidious at first, but increased in frequency and vividness as the weeks went by. Great watery spaces opened out before me, and I seemed to wander through titanic sunken porticos and labyrinths of weedy cyclopean walls with grotesque fishes as my companions. Then the other shapes began to appear, filling me with nameless horror the moment I awoke, but during the dreams they did not horrify me at all. I was one with them, wearing their unhuman trappings, treading their aqueous ways, and praying monstrously at their evil sea-bottom temples. There was much more than I could remember, but even what I did remember each morning would be enough to stamp me as a madman or a genius if I ever dared write it down. Some frightful influence I felt was seeking gradually to drag me out of the sane world of wholesome life into unnameable abysses of blackness and alienage and the process told heavily on me. My health and appearance grew steadily worse, till finally I was forced to give up my position and adopt the static, secluded life of an invalid. Some odd nervous affliction had me in its grip, and I found myself at times almost unable to shut my eyes. It was then that I began to study the mirror with a mounting alarm. The slow ravages of disease are not pleasant to watch, but in my case, there was something subtler and more puzzling in the background. My father seemed to notice it too, for he began looking at me curiously and almost affrightedly. What was taking place in me? Could it be that I was coming to resemble my grandmother and, and Uncle Douglas? One night I had a frightful dream in which I met my grandmother under the sea. She lived in a phosphorescent palace of many terraces with gardens of strange leprous corals and grotesque brachiate efflorescences, and welcomed me with a warmth that may have been sardonic. She had changed, as those who take to the water change, and told me she had never died. Instead, she had gone to a spot her dead son had learned about, and had leapt to a realm whose wonders, destined for him as well, he had spurned with a smoking pistol. This was to be my realm too. I could not escape it. I would never die, but would live with those who had lived since before man ever walked the earth. I met also that which had been her grandmother. For eighty thousand years, Pith Yali had lived in Yanathle, and thither she had gone back after Ovin Marsh was dead. Yanathle was not destroyed when the upper earthmen shot death into the sea. It was hurt, but not destroyed. The deep ones can never be destroyed even though the Pelagian magic of the forgotten old ones might sometimes check them. For the present, they would rest. But someday, if they remembered, they would rise again for the tribute Great Cthulhu craved. It would be a city greater than Innsmouth next time. They had planned to spread, and had brought up that which would help them. But now they must wait once more. For bringing the Upper Earth men's death, I must do a penance. But that would not be heavy. This was the dream in which I saw a Shogoth for the first time, and the sight set me awake in a frenzy of screaming. That morning the mirror definitely told me I had acquired the Innsmith look. So far I have not shot myself as my Uncle Douglas did. I bought an automatic and almost took the step, but certain dreams deterred me. The intense extremes of horror are lessening, and I feel queerly drawn toward the unknown sea depths instead of fearing them. I hear and 
do strange things in sleep, and awake with a kind of exaltation instead of terror. I do not believe I need to wait for the full change as most have waited. If I did, my father would probably shut me up in a sanitarium as my poor little cousin is shut up. Stupendous and unheard of splendors await me below, and I shall seek them soon. No, I shall not shoot myself. I cannot be made to shoot myself. I shall plan my cousin's escape from that Canton madhouse, and together we shall go to Marvel Shadowed Innsmouth. We shall swim out to the brooding reef in the sea, and dive down through black abysses to Cyclopean and many column Yanathle. And in that layer of the deep ones, we shall dwell amidst wonder and glory forever. And that is the end of The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Our narrator, Robert Olmsted, has found himself at a great crossroads. On the one hand, he has his human land-dweller existence, which he knows is leaving him. He has no say in that. The drastic actions of his late uncle present him with an option, however. Reject the call from the deep, and his biological transformation into something unrecognizable by way of suicide? Or embrace his transformation and join his eternally living ancestors to swim, live, and worship in the dark, unknown abysses. This is a running theme throughout different Lovecraft stories. The oblivious protagonist, who goes digging in places he shouldn't, only to find terrible truths about his own family past. But in The Shadow Over Innsmouth, I believe it's done as well as, well as Lovecraft ever did it. We don't find out definitively what the choice was in this story, but I think we can assume he chooses to become a deep one, freeing his little cousin first and then escaping with him to meet his family under the water. I remember years back when I was in the catechumenate process of converting to the Orthodox Church, I was listening to every Orthodox podcast I could find to learn more and more. I came across one called The Illumined Heart, which featured a host by the name of Kevin Allen who has since passed on a couple years ago due to developing ALS. The show basically featured guests of all walks of life to talk about a range of topics related to life in the Orthodox faith. This particular episode that made me think of Robert Olmsted's revelation of his ancestry was when Kevin of Blessed Memory interviewed a couple young men from Biola University in California. They had converted to the faith in their young adulthood, and what they had to say about being in an evangelical context and discovering the ancient church, then embracing it, closely mirrored my own experience. In particular, a phrase one of the men used. He said about his converting to orthodoxy, quote, there was an inevitability to it, end quote. Like it was going to happen. No matter where he was currently in his spiritual journey or what his life circumstances were, the faith was calling him. Truth was calling him and at some point he was going to have to convert to find peace in his spirit and mind. I greatly enjoy this aspect of Lovecraft's stories. In many of them, our character finds himself being pulled towards some inevitability, some great ontological truth that can't be forgotten or ignored. It must be dealt with in either the destruction of the character through madness and death, or becoming part of it in some nefarious way if the story provides. As we have seen many times, there is a truth of some sort turned on its head in Lovecraft's presentation. For myself and many who find the great truth of the Orthodox faith, it cannot be ignored or forgotten. I hope I have communicated this adequately, but in reality, 
the Orthodox Christian faith isn't a hobby or extra Facebook profile status, any more than being a deep one is for those who find themselves transforming. The Church, when taken as seriously as it should be, is an ontological metamorphosis for the convert. Not to say it's instantaneous or easy, but it will happen. Robert Olmsted sees his change in the mirror, slowly taking him. His mind is falling more and more in love with what he originally found detestable and horrific. He wants to dive into the dark aquatic abysses and swim forever in those inhuman underwater cities. We Orthodox want to stand in the fire of God forever, becoming more like Him. In this side of life, it happens in the grandness of divine liturgy and the receiving of the holy mystery of Eucharist, but it also happens in the seemingly mundane, everyday interactions with God's creation and our fellow man. We can embrace the continued transformation or hinder it by our working with or against God's energies in our life. Robert is embracing his change, becoming something inhuman. Let's embrace ours fully and become truly human. Thanks for listening throughout this wonderfully creepy story. And as always, I encourage everyone to read the stories for yourself. All his work is in the public domain and there's no shortage of physical books of his collected works. I said at the beginning I wanted to make an announcement and so let's get to it. This episode will be a soft season ending of sorts. The end of season one that is. I'd like to take some time to recharge, get more episodes pre-written and recorded hopefully so as to release at a more predictable pace etc etc. I don't know how long the break will be but I don't imagine it will be too terribly long. It's taken some time to build up my audience to the humble size it is and I would like to have at least one or two listeners left by the time I release season two. So don't delete this off your podcast app, I'm not gone. I'll just be dead dreaming for a while, waiting until the stars are right. So it's a soft end, because I'm going to put one more episode before I take off for the break. I put out a poll on the Christ in Cthulhu Instagram page to celebrate the 1000 listen mark. I asked people to choose between two stories to be featured, The Hound or The Statement of Randolph Carter. Well, Randolph Carter was the more popular pick, so that's what we'll be doing. I believe it will be a simple read-through. I'm going to try and do it to the nines with sound effects and all that to give a real good audio presentation. As always, supplemented immensely by music from Graham Plowman. So be on the lookout for that episode coming your way. And for goodness sake, follow the Christ in Cthulhu Instagram page to stay up to date. The music on this podcast was provided by composer Graham Plowman and Dahlia's Tear. You can find Graham Plowman at GrahamPlowman.com, iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook. You can also find Dahlia's Tear on iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, as well as their Bandcamp. I've been your host, C.L. Fuquay, and until next time, remember, That is not dead, which can eternal lie, and with strange aeons, even death may die. <laughs>